Good evening. Welcome to tonight's seminar. My name is Walter Armbrust, for anybody who doesn't already know that. I'm a fellow at the Middle East Center, and I'm introducing tonight's speaker, who is Robert Springborg, who is one of the most distinguished people in the field of writing about the place that I write about, which is Egypt. He's currently a non-resident research fellow of the Italian Institute of International Affairs in Rome. Now, that sounds nice. Before that, up until 2013, he was a, a professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in the United States. And I remember at that time he was writing lots of art. He was, the, he was the, one of the only people who actually knew anything about the Egyptian military during the revolution and was writing great things about it. From 2002 to 2008, he was the MBI Al-Jabber Chair in Middle East Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies and also director of the London Middle East Institute. He has been the director of the American Research Center in Egypt, which I'm sure is a fascinating job. I've had, or I've had two RC fellowships. I don't think I would want to be on the administrative side of that, but uh, Bob was. And then between 1973 until 1999, he taught in Australia, where he was university professor of Middle East politics at Macquarie University. His broad areas of expertise are political anthropology and political economy, of the Middle East with a special focus on Egypt and on U.S. foreign policy towards the region. He has numerous publications, uh, which I'm sure you've heard from uh, many other speakers. He, he had a book, uh, one of his first book was Family, Power, and Politics in Egypt, Sayed Bey Marai, His Clan, Clients, and Cohorts. That was in 1982. And then he had Mubarak's Egypt, Fragmentation of the Political Order in 1989, which is a fantastic book. It's got you know, amazing empirical precision, but is also beautifully written. It's an excellent book. He's done numerous co-authored and edited works on Egypt and other parts of the Middle East. He's published in all the major Middle East studies journals. Most recently, he has published a book with a very brief title. It's just called Egypt. It's in a book series on global hotspots, and the book is an assessment of, of the current political and social state of Egypt. It was just published this year. It is, in fact, on sale. I think some of you may have already purchased it uh, on a table outside the door of the auditorium. And so immediately after the lecture and question and answer period are over, Bob will go out and sign books for anybody who wants to buy them. And the, and the purchase price is less than the price that you would have to pay if you bought it online or at a bookstore. His lecture here this evening is related to the to the recent book. The, the title of the lecture is Governing Divided Egypt. So I give to you Robert Springboard. Thank you, Walter. Thank you very much. It's a, a real pleasure to be here with you 45 years after I last spoke to St. Anthony's Middle East Center. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't such a good uh, presentation. <laughs> takes time for bad effects to wear off. Uh, I was then a graduate student and had completed PhD thesis research in Egypt and was invited by Roger, Robert, and Derek, then the triumvirate here uh, running the show, to come and do my presentation. And it was very narrowly focused, as most PhD theses are, on decision-making the executive branch in Egypt. So I went from the sublime to the ridiculous, from this very narrow focus on who is kicking whom in the bureaucracy, to a book, as Walter just mentioned, by the name of Egypt. <laughs> so we've gone from the very microscopic to the very macroscopic. And uh, just before I tell you what's in the, the, the macroscope there, I'll say that I'm looking for feedback because the 
publisher uh, wants to sell a lot of books, as they all do. That's their real interest here. And so they said it has to be a book for everybody. You know, it, we can't narrow it down with a title like Egypt for, you know, uh, Egypt 1952. Not, no, 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 it's Egypt. And it has to be written in a style that uh, everyone can appreciate from the cognoscenti to the least informed and so on. So I've written a book that will probably appeal to no one at all, uh, <laughs> is, is the end result of that. But I have, and they also print these nice little cards that have my email address on them. And so I'm looking, you are the third audience to hear uh, me present this book. And so I really, I'm hoping there's a second edition and then I can decide which audience I really need, <laughs> need to serve. So if you are, would be so kind as to give me any feedback, that's how you do it. The email is there and I seriously would appreciate it. So the challenge was to write a book about a country that I had first gone and worked in in 1965, so a fair number of years. And it was a country which I arrived in and found absolutely fascinating. And the metaphor I use, and it's a little bit overworked, but it's accurate, it was that when you arrived in Cairo, as I did in the summer of 1965, you could actually smell the jasmine in the air. And the little boys and girls were running around with those little jasmine, you know, the little lace bracelets, you know, with pieces of string and little jasmine flowers on them. And the whole city took on the smell of this jasmine and the moonlight shining on the Nile and you know all of that and the trip out to the pyramid you know through the wonderful agricultural area where you still had the Tadur and the Shadouf and all this sort of stuff was all still there in 1965. So fast forward to the present and the diesel fumes have replaced the jasmine, the informal settlements have replaced the agricultural land and the political community of Egypt, which is in a sense the central focus of this book, is fraying at the edges. And you're probably all familiar with that in its many manifestations, whether class divisions, whether regional divisions, whether gender divisions, whether religious divisions, whether ethnic divisions of a very minor sort, but nevertheless there. Egypt's political community is nothing like as solid, homogeneous as it was uh, 50 years ago. So how does one explain that? And you explain it, I think, by virtue of the state and the underperformance of the state. Nation and state are symbiotic ideas. A well-performing state creates a political community and creates solidarities that people will then use to overlook the divisions between them. An underperforming state will accentuate them. And it's not just in Egypt, it's just about everywhere where that is increasingly a problem. But in Egypt, it's a really serious problem now. And it's a serious problem not just because of fraying political community there, but because it's in a part of the world where political community is frayed more generally. So cast your attention to Libya or Yemen or Syria or Iraq, and you see how the problem can be much bigger. And therefore, Egypt, which was the real solid state of the region, and which did not come apart in 2011, but which, as I'm arguing in the book, is under threat, if not in an existential way, a term the Israelis like to use a lot, which I'm a little therefore nervous to use, uh, but uh, nevertheless, a threat to the cohesion of uh, this political community. And so the book tries to explain that, and it does so by first just giving some examples of how this community is framed, and then moving to several chapters of explanation, all of which are about politics, and then a chapter that tries to link political decision-making to the outcome for human and physical infrastructure in a variety of sort of prosaic ways. And then the last very brief chapter is sort of what lies ahead. So now the publisher not only wanted me to write this book for everybody, but they also wanted it to sort of focus on the events of 2011. It's a hot spot, as Walter said. That's the, the series in which the book appears. And so the hot spot was January 25, 2011. And I realized right away we were on 
we are not talking effectively to one another because I'm not the sort of a writer who can write sort of stories about events. This is not my forte at all. My wife is a creative writer. She's very good at that. And she says, you fool, when she sees when I try to do such a thing. So I thought, okay, you better be analytical about this and try to explain why it is that the coevolution, not the revolution, but the coevolution, misfired. And so that caused me to dig into comparative democratic transition literature to see how other folks have explained successful transitions to see how indeed I might explain this one that didn't succeed. Now it's not so dramatic, this is a bit social science-y, but I think it probably gives you an idea of what the problems are in the country. So why didn't the 2011 result in a fundamental change of regime and the establishment of a democratic order? So I came up with seven so-called democratic demographic deficits, just to keep it all in the D. DDD. Three DDDs. Seven DDDs. The first is Egypt is too young. Egypt the median age in Egypt is 23 and a bit. The median age required for successful democratic transitions is 30. Older people are more democratic. I'm saying this partly tongue-in-cheek, but there are a whole variety. With each one of these correlates, there are a variety of explanations. The oldest, highest median age Arab country is Tunisia. 29. And maybe not by surprise, therefore, Tunisia has come the closest to a democratic transition. So it's too young. It's too rural. Egypt is one of the few countries in the world that's re-ruralizing. The rate of urbanization went into reverse about a decade ago, and it continues to be going into reverse. Why is that? Many explanations, the key of which I think gives you some idea of what's going on in the country more broadly. It is that you urbanize if you have economic attraction, if you're creating jobs in urban areas. So if we think of the Chinese, the great Chinese movement from Western China to coastal China, if we think of the movement out of the South in the American uh, post-World War I era, but especially post-World War II, up to the North. So people follow jobs, and the problem in Egypt has been insufficient job creation. So it's cheaper to live in the countryside, and you also don't confront all sorts of issues you might confront in urban Egypt. So the country remains stuck at a 40-some percent urbanization rate, which has actually dropped sort of now into reverse. The third is it's too poor, and all of you, I'm aware, sure, are aware of that. The poverty statistics in Egypt are truly appalling. The situation's getting much worse rather than better. One of the good indicators of this poverty is childhood stunting. Egypt is now becoming one of the five countries of the world with the greatest problem of childhood stunting, which is a result results from inadequate diet uh, poverty. Paradoxically, another, the fourth DDD, is the middle class. And the classic sort of theory of revolutions uh, is that the middle class deserts the regime. They get tired of those guys. And because the middle class is an important class, when it deserts it, then it's bound to fall. Within Egypt, the middle class is relatively small and was actually declining in size, and you might argue in political importance, from about 2000 on. <laughs> The late Mubarak era was a bad era for the Egyptian middle class, and so the bank did some studies of that, compared it to Morocco. Moroccan middle class doing very much better, for example, than the Egyptian middle class. A fifth deficit is security, and I don't mean of the counterterrorism sort, I mean of the economic sort. So the proportion of Egyptians being hired into so-called informal jobs had risen by the end of the Mubarak era to about three in four. In other words, three in four new recruits into the labor force were not hired on permanent contracts, 
which involve health insurance, uh, long-term social insur insurance, uh, fixed-term contracts or extended contracts, uh, and all the benefits that come from having that sort of employment. So the growth of the informal sector in Egypt was reflected in the fact that it was absorbing by 2011 three quarters of all new entrants into the labor force. Now, why is this important for politics? Because to engage effectively in politics, people need a sense of security. And the World Values Sur Survey, which is the WVS, just log on WVS.org, and you'll get some ideas. They, they do measures of this globally and how important security is to uh, generally democratic transitions. Six one is government control. Uh, and the government control of the economy is such in Egypt that the dependence of individuals for the government for their daily bread is huge and the best thing that, and it's true in whether it's government employment whether it's subsidies or in a variety of other ways of bank loans which are handed out to cronies of the regime the, the most sort of graphic measure of this dependence upon government uh, was revealed in 2005 in a survey that James Mayfield, James Mayfield, a specialist in rural Egypt, conducted. And so he asked families and villages their primary source of income. 51% responded their primary source of income was a government salary. This is in the agricultural villages of Egypt to give you some idea of how dependent people are on government employment. So clearly if you're dependent upon the government in that magnitude, then your desire to say nothing of your abilities to rise up against that government uh, are going to be muted. Lastly, education and training. This is the correlation between education and successful democratic transitions is interestingly the weakest of these correlations, but there is one. There is a positive correlation between educational reach and depth and successful democratic transitions. And the reach and depth of the Egyptian educational system is very poor. So I satisfied the publisher's sort of desire uh, in an indirect way by giving these things up. And then sort of uh, move on in the book to try to give some idea in a very thumbnail way of the, the decline of Egypt. And I harked back to the good old days of Charles Isoe, a Princeton economist who uh, compared Egypt to Japan, which doesn't come easily now, right? Egypt and Japan, you know, we think, wait a minute. So he starts in 1830, when Egypt was, the Egyptian elite was more aware of Western science and technology than was the Japanese elite. And then he moves forward in a series of more or less 10-year time frames, to give you some idea of the comparison of the two countries. At the turn of the century, Egypt had more railway miles per capita than did Japan. At the outbreak of <clears throat> World War I, the GDP per capita in Egypt was substantially higher than that of Japan's. So going back to the 1830, 1830s, it's clear that Egypt can no longer be spoken of in the very same breath as can Japan. What about South Korea? In 1965, Egypt's GDP per capita was about a third higher than South Korea's. South Korea's GDP per capita is now 12 times Egypt's. 2006, Morocco's GDP was almost double that of Egypt's. Uh, it's now triple. So whether you take uh, a local comparator, that of Morocco, whether you take one of the Asian tigers, South Korea, or the biggest Asian, second biggest Asian tiger, Japan, you see this steady slide, and we could do that with a whole host of other countries. Another measure of comparative performance is the currency value, the pound of Egypt. In 1990, the pound was worth, uh, 1960 rather, the pound was worth $3. 
1990, it was worth 30 cents. It's now worth 5 cents. So it's a sort of a ready reckoner, if you will, of the downhill slide. So why? The explanation lies in, again, my battle with the publisher may have caused uh, me to sort of slim down the theoretical framework. And so we agreed I could have three theoretical pegs to hang it on. And so they're little pegs. They're, they're, they don't take a lot of space in the book, and you can skip through those and, and still get the meaning, I think. The first one was a limited access order. And those of you who are familiar with institutional economics and the man who really created the field, Douglas North, will know of what I speak. Or if you happen to read this week's Economist, you will see reference to the LAO, the limited access order, in an assessment by the Economist writers of Putin's Russia. And I think it is an appropriate idea, both with regard to Putin's Russia and with regard to contemporary Egypt. Limited access order is when the elite basically circle the, the wagons around the political economy and decide that they are going to divide up the spoils. Rather than trying to expand the pie, they are simply going to slice the pie that's there and take the biggest wedges themselves. So the limited access order as, compo as compared to an open access order. Uh, so the viability of the concept, which really under Douglas North and his team remained more theoretical than an empirical idea, then gave rise to some work on the part of the bank, the World Bank, to try to operationalize this idea. And Ishak Dewan and his team uh, began a series of investigations of politically connected firms, uh, mainly in Egypt, but elsewhere also in the Arab world. And their research, which has been coming out in a series of articles over the past three or four years now, gives a pretty clear idea of the benefits derived by those in politically connected firms, those inside the limited access order, as compared to firms on the outside of that order, and then the impact on the economy as a whole. And just one, there are, there are a whole lot of nice little uh, statistics you can pull out of that, but the best one to me is that in Egypt, the profitability of politically connected firms was 13 times greater than equivalent companies outside that limited access order. So the term limited access order, I think, has empirical meaning. I've been given it now in the last few years. And so a sort of a useful idea to understand what goes on in Egypt. The second idea is that of the socio-fiscal trap, the socio-fiscal trap. And that idea is not from institutional economics. It's from political economists working in Egypt, Samra Soliman, who is one of the original progenitors of the idea, and now Amr Adli, whose book, God willing, will be out before too long. So what's this idea of the socio-fiscal trap? It is that the revenues of the government are insufficient to sustain the expenditures. And the expenditure side is, is sort of doubly problematic, not only because they're insufficient revenues gathered through taxation and, and other means of raising revenues, but because the demand for recurrent expenditures by the government is huge. So what are those recurrent expenditures? They are subsidies, about a third of the budget now, a little less. Government salaries, around 30%, and debt repayment, uh, interest payment on the debt, which is now about 34% of total government expenditures. So if you add these figures up, your 90% plus of a government budget is on recurrent expenditures expenditures which are in place to sustain the social contract, the political base of the regime. And that's the point that Samer and Amr 
have been making, namely that the regime has not been able to shift the political base away from a, a, a dependent public sector nominal middle class, but anyone with a government job, and away from the subsidies, and increasingly away from the money that they've borrowed to support those expenditures. And so the consequence for so-called gross fixed capital formation, that is investment allocations, has been devastating. So Egypt is now allocating about 12% of GDP to gross fixed capital formation. The only Arab country allocating less is Yemen. Now, why is this important? Well, those of you who go to Egypt see what's happened to the infrastructure. But more than that, the non-competitive infrastructure then undermines the growth of of a potentially newly free class or classes from the public sector, from the government, that might then, excuse me, serve as a basis for a new political coalition to emerge. So in the absence of of significant private sector growth, you are not going to be able to sort of shift the weight of government dependence from a government workforce into a more diversified labor force. So the idea of a socio-fiscal trap is a good one. Now the last idea is historical sociology, and our colleague Hazem Kandil at Cambridge is the one who developed this idea the furthest with regard to Egypt. He borrowed it from Michael Mann, who teaches at UCLA. And the idea that Michael Mann came up with some considerable years ago was the idea of infrastructural as opposed to despotic power. Infrastructural power is the capacity of a government to penetrate and interact with and know about civil society and the economy. And the economy you can include in civil society. Despotic power is, as it suggests, the idea that you force compliance on the population by intimidation. Now, simple idea, why does this make any difference? Well, if you take taxation, you understand how it works. Egypt has, as I just suggested, quite a low taxation rate. The taxation, total government taxation as a proportion of GDP is about 12%. Denmark's is 51. Turkey's is 32 or so. Morocco's is about 22, 23. So Egypt is very low in collecting taxes a proportion of GDP. Why is that? Infrastructural power is weak. There's a, a measure the IMF produces every year called the SIM ratio, contract intensive money. Contract intensive money is the money that goes through the banking sector. Now, if money is held under mattresses, then how does the government know what you have earned, how you have earned it, what you're doing with it? Now, we know, unfortunately, in our case, that uh, they know everything about our money, even if we put it down in the Cayman Islands. They're likely to find out. Our government has profound infrastructural power. So for them, it's relatively easy to collect the taxes. They set a goal, 30% GDP, well, okay, not hard. Now, if you're in Egypt, on the other hand, infrastructural power is very limited. Not only is it limited within the financial sector, only about about 5% of Egyptians have bank accounts. It's also limited in a whole host of other ways, starting with the simplest, the address you live at. When you have informal housing, accounting for over 50% of the housing in the country, much of it without any address, you get some idea of the problems of penetrating, regulating, extracting taxes from population. So those are basically the three ideas that drive the book. And then we get down to the sort of nitty gritty of how this limited access order is gate kept. Who determines who is allowed into it and who is rejected from it. And in a nutshell, that's the deep state. And so the book then tries to explain relatively briefly this idea and exemplify it in its three principal legs, which are the military, foreign away the largest of the three legs, the intelligence services and the presidency. So the military is a pretty uh, brawny leg in Egypt. It's the largest uh, military in Africa and the Middle East. It is about just over 900,000 men on active or reserve duty at the present time. It is rated as the world's 12th 
most powerful military, just behind South Korea, Italy, and Germany, whose GDPs are, in each case, at least 12 times higher than Egypt. Egypt was the fourth largest purchaser on world markets last year of weaponry. We could go on with it. The Egyptian Navy is now ranked as the sixth most potent in the world. This is with an underlying base of an economy that is a fraction of that of any of these comparators of the military. So the military is heavy on procurement. We can talk a little bit about performance. This is a military that's lost the only five wars it's ever engaged in since 1952. That's, the, that's your rule of thumb for the quality of the military. We could talk about counterterrorism, search and rescue, you name the various challenges facing modern militaries. None of them are met effectively by the Egyptian military. It's neither trained adequately, it lacks operational capacities, so it's uh, an overblown, overexpensive military. So why don't people object? After all, the revolutionaries, that's the right term, in Medina Tahrir in 2011 said we are one hand with the military. And first, you can excuse them on the grounds that everybody loves their militaries. Militaries are the most popular institutions in virtually every country, including this one. Parliaments are usually the least popular institutions, right? So the voice of the people is considered to be a cacophony, and the sort of solidity of the military and the shiny buttons and epaulets tend to be more attractive. So the Egyptian military is very good at polishing up the brass buttons and, and all of that. So the soft power of the Egyptian military is really profound in all sorts of ways, sporting clubs, museums, movies, now their whole educational system, a new university, and on the saga goes. It's a cradle-to-grave military society. So the military is the most important actor in this deep state. Second one are security services. And the security, it's not a police state. Egypt is not a police state. Contrary to the old Muhabarat state idea that was very common, and it was a misnomer. The intelligence services are subordinate to the military or the president, and always have been. It is not Russia. In Russia, it was the NKVD under Stalin, which was the inheritor of the old Tsarist secret police. Then it became the KGB, and now under Putin rose originally KGB, and then it was changed to the FSB. And Russia venerates it, that security service in, through its four changes in the same way Egypt venerates its military. So streets, statues, public holidays in Russia are the veneration of its intelligence services, police state. Egypt was never that. The intelligence services are not venerated. They're useful. They're useful for the military, which operates primarily now and did it in the Nasser era through military intelligence. Most important intelligence organization in the country now and under Nasser was military intelligence. And its job primarily is to keep track of the officer corps. It's not to gather information about the enemy. That's a secondary task. Primary task is to monitor its own officer corps and further down NCOs and enlisted men. The intelligence services were shifted, Nasser shifted his control mechanism of intelligence from military intelligence, which he began with, into Ministry of Interior Intelligence Services. And he did that because he became uncertain of his control of the military and therefore military intelligence. He was challenged by his colleague and the father of his one of his offspring, the father-in-law of one of his offspring. So very close relationship. But Nasser then cultivated the intelligence services under the Ministry of Interior and a, a, a street control force under the Ministry of Interior, post-1967, Central Security Force. But it's a counterbalance. There was never a question. 
that the Ministry of Interior Forces, whether intelligence or whether of an armed sort in the street, would be the equivalent of the military. And the third leg of the deep state is the presidency itself. And the book is only 80,000 words, so we couldn't talk about all the presidents, so I thought it was most useful to talk about the current president, Sisi, and Nasser, because they are the two most alike in how they run the country. And this is a book focused on how it works rather more than it is on the actual content of the policies. So the how it works as I'm suggesting to you, is that Nasser was a man who started with the military as the base, and then as he was sort of preempted from that by his colleague, Abdul Hakim Amr, he had to then shift his primary political weight into the intelligence services. Uh, they remained subordinate to him, but nevertheless became important. Sadat, who had never been a really serious military officer, he was AWOL permanently after five years in the service, also used intelligence far more than he did military, churned his military high command. According to Hazelman Deal, he actually uh, had many of his high command killed off. So he had uneasy relations with his military. Now Sisi, by contrast, was created by the military. He was the fair-haired boy of the longest-serving Minister of Defense in the country's history, uh, Muhammad Hussein Kantawi. He was given operational commands. He was given his six-week training course at Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. And most importantly, he was given the deputy and then directorship of military intelligence, the most important organization in the country. And it was from that position that he rose to power. Now, the difference between Sisi and Nasser is, so far, Sisi does not have his minister of defense in the form of an Abdul Hakim Amr. Uh, but the question is, might there have been one emerging in that role? Uh, because five, six days ago now, the chief of staff was removed summarily. The chief of staff is just like Amr. He is the father of the wife of Sisi's son. And he was Sisi's mentor in military intelligence, Muhammad Hagazi. And uh, he was removed from his position. Speculation on why. Now, what's the point of all of this? It is that you have a, a sort of a return to the beginning here, the beginning of the republics, 1952. And presidents Sadat and Mubarak had moved away from direct dependence on the military. They had tried to create counterbalances to it, whether the Arab Socialist Union, whether the intelligence services, or in Mubarak's case, a somewhat more vibrant civil society, and in Sadat's case, the Muslim Brotherhood. So these presidents were not so sure of their control of the military. Sisi is from the bowels of that institution and quite certain of his control, and so hasn't felt compelled up to this point to really try to create counterbalances. Indeed, he's tried to repress any other autonomous manifestation. So that's the deep state. How does then the deep state carry out its writ more widely in society? And this then directs you to the nominal above-ground institutions of government, which are the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. And then finally, to civil and political society. So one chapter is on the actual state, the nominal state itself. And uh, the nominal state, the strategies of control, differ whether we're talking about the executive, the judiciary, or the legislative branch. It controls the, the deep state controls the executive branch very directly. And when I first went to Egypt, I worked in the Hilton Hotel. 
and as a young fellow. It was rather interesting to become aware at that tender young age of the role played by intelligence agencies uh, in managing a hotel. It seemed uh, rather strange. Why were there all these guys who were clearly not working for the same organization I was working for? <laughs> and that began a, a long career, I worked in different jobs in Egypt, of having to deal with the deep state's penetration of the executive branch, whether the Ministry of Agriculture, whether the Ministry of Education, whether the Ministry of Local Government. If you were talking to someone who was actually employed in that agency, ministry, department, you were talking to the wrong person. They didn't have the means to make the decisions that you needed to do whatever you wanted to do. So penetration, stovepiping of it, because the deep state does not want the executive branch to be a unified whole. They do not want the ideas divide and rule. And so the cabinet is the, the sort of final product of that. And the cabinet has never been a cohesive organization in Republican Egypt. The cabinet ministers squabble amongst one another over turf, as they do in any cabinet, but really in a profound way in Egypt, and that squabbling is cultivated by the deep state to ensure that there not be coalitions that might rise up against them. The judiciary is somewhat different than this. The judiciary is given more latitude than the executive branch, and it's given that latitude because to gain compliance of litigants and the society more generally, the judiciary has to have at least the appearance of autonomy. Otherwise, what are these decisions? They're executive orders. So the judiciary then uses that autonomy to try to reinforce its position to, on occasion, fence in the executive branch, and in general, to sort of assert its independence and power. And so from 1952, when the two emergency courts were created, until today, there is a sort of a, a yin and a yang, a seesaw struggle back and forth between the deep state and the judiciary. And right now, the judiciary is at one of the lowest points it's ever been, almost back to where it was when you had the two emergency courts created by Nasser in 1952. The third branch, the parliament, is between the judiciary and the executive in terms of the strategy of control of it. The parliament poses a real threat to the deep state. It is, after all, the potential embodiment of sovereignty in the country. It is the only national representative body. It is the vehicle through which democratization ultimately has to be practiced. And so it's conceivable that you could have a real move against the deep state originating in a population that elected representatives who would then use the parliament, which is reasonably empowered, especially by the 2014 constitution, to trim the powers of the executive and by implication the deep state. And so the control of parliament is very carefully done, uh, starting with the selection of membership, not the election, but selection, because the penetration of the nominating process is complete. So the two dominant parties in the parliament today were both created by military intelligence, as Nasser used military intelligence back in 1953-54 to create what was then the Liberation Rally, the very first of the quasi-parties uh, in the country. So the selection process and then the choice of the speaker and the secretary general of the parliament. Never before in the history of the Egyptian parliament, the oldest parliament in the Arab world goes back to 1866, has a military officer been nominated and indeed taken the position of secretary general of the parliament. And Sisi did that. There was an outcry. So he was replaced by guess who? A police general. So, and the secretary general is key because the secretary general signs all the paperwork for the members. If they want to travel, if they need an office upgrade, if they want to get a computer, Secretary General. So it's a control point within the system. The Speaker and the first book that I wrote that Walter mentioned was a study of the Speaker of Parliament. And I had the good fortune of being 
allowed to sort of sit in his office. And he, he was a man with a big ego and was pleased to have some guy uh, take an interest in what he was doing. But look, he was a smooth operator, this guy. He, he knew, he, you know, I, my family was in politics in America and I, I sort of grew up in a state legislature. And it was like being back home, you know. This guy, you know, he'd have guys of the opposition come in, he'd sit around, he'd have coffee with them. Uh, he'd send them as a member of a parliamentary delegation off to London, and, you know, and so he knew how to play the game. If you compare that gentleman to the current speaker, who's a thug and who insults the opposition and who wouldn't even allow him into his office, you get some idea of the change in the nature of the parliamentary system. This is a very draconian regime, whereas Sadat's regime, there was an engagement with politics. It was much more political. So those are the three branches of government, deep state working through them. Now I'm running out of time, just very quickly on civil and political society. The chapter is framed on the basis that Egypt is a very religious society and that a control strategy, therefore, has to take account of that. And there are different strategies for control of Muslims as opposed to Christians, but they have similarities. And I know this issue of religiosity is a contentious one. And I myself don't believe the data. And the data that I took is from Pew Research, which I think is the world's best research organization doing international research. Most reliable, face-to-face, -face, not telephone, all, all the required things of good surveys. Pew does. And if you take a look, it's, uh, there are a summary of it in the book, but you can take a look, just go onto the Pew's website and look at their, uh, their research in Muslim-majority countries, Egypt is the most religious, more than Saudi Arabia. So this is a bit, you know, comes as a bit of a shock, I agree, and it's not absolutely vital to the argument of the book. The argument of the book is that you have both official and unofficial religion, and the regime has to use both to control Christians and Muslims. With regard to Christians, the official religion is, of course, the papacy. And the papacy is in a sort of fixed relationship with the deep state in that the deep state allocates to the papacy powers to control its flock in a variety of ways. And this was one of the issues that mobilized young cops in 2011 that they wanted to get the heavy hand of the papacy off their backs in a whole host of ways, whether control of marriage, non-divorce, whole host of things, but politically key to it. And uh, they were beaten back quite literally. So the papacy is one part of the story. The other part of the story is an interesting and more interesting part because it was the way of, a, of accommodating the discrimination against Christians in Egypt who are not allowed in anything like the proportion of their members into public jobs and most especially the military. The glass ceiling is at the colonel level and so cops feel and are discriminated against. So the safety valve both at I suppose sort of an emotional psychological level but also at an economic level has been through the Swearies family. And the Roscom, which is their flagship company, but also other of their enterprises, are heavily dominated by Christians. And that has been the way by which the regime has taken some of the pressure off. With regard to the Muslim community, established Islam is most notable in the form of the Al-Azhar, and therefore the Sheikh Al-Azhar. And therein lies a bit of a tale, because the Sheikh Al-Azhar, Ahmed Tayyab, stood on the other side of Sisi, when he announced the coup in June of 2013, whereas the Pope was on the other side. Now, in the case of Ahmed Tayyib, he is chosen by 
a committee of scholars of al-Azhar. And Ahmed Tayyib is a political figure, is a political operative under Mubarak, and so the guy has an agenda and has sort of been a thorn in the side of President Sisi. And so there's been a struggle between the two, but Ahmed and Ahmed Tayyib has been reined in quite a bit, but he's still there. Now, the rest of the, the, the chapter about control of Islamic groups deals with the Brotherhood, deals with jihadis, and so on, and I, I won't say maybe in question time we can take that up. So, just very briefly, what's the effect of all of this state that is interested in control? That's its interest. Everything else is secondary. When a state is interested in control rather than growth, democratization, education, and so on, it has devastating effects for the human and physical infrastructure. For the human infrastructure, there are a whole series of measures of how underperforming it is, and maybe the best one is demographic growth. Egypt is now a country that is almost unique in the world of having a growing net reproduction rate. This is very unusual for a country to have had the gradual decline of development of people having fewer children and then population ultimately dropping as a result of that. In Egypt, that was true from the 60s on up until about five years ago. And about five years ago, the population, the net reproduction rate, the number of children per mother began to increase again. At the same time, the number of mothers began to increase. So Egypt is now growing to about 2.5 or so million new Egyptians every year. It's got a population now of 94 million. It'll be at 140 million by 2040, bigger than Japan or Russia. 2050, 150 to 160 million people. It's the most densely settled country in the world. If you take only those regions that are inhabited, which is the Delta, the, the Valley, and the Suez Canal Zone, it's the seventh most densely populated country in the world. The six in front of it are all city-states. The Holy Say, Singapore, Hong Kong, and so on. So this problem is huge. Delivering services to a, a very dense population that's poorly educated. One-third of Egyptians are illiterate. It is 35 places below where it ought to be on the Human Development Indicator Index that the World Bank puts together on the Education Index. So the population is not being well-educated. The population growth rate is due to the lack of jobs. Female participation in the labor force has dropped down to low 20s, one of the lowest in the world. So the human infrastructural development is exceedingly poor. Physical, take a look at pollution and a variety of things of that sort, traffic accident rate. Egypt's one of the world's most dangerous places to drive your car. So there are a whole bunch of sort of indicators of failing human and physical infrastructure. So where does this leave us? Well, there are three scenarios. One is business as usual. Don't ever bet against Egypt. Baddest things are, they are a patient folk and put up with a lot and it's also too big to fail. No one wants to see 94 million people without a government unless they all take the boats or unless they invite in Ayman Zawahiri, now the number one man in Al-Qaeda, who is after all a boy from Mahdi and he would like nothing more than to revisit his ancestral home there on the banks of the Nile as would many other jihadis. And so the combination of the threat of terrorism and of uncontrolled human migration causes much of the rest of the world, the Western world, to keep this regime afloat. And so the IMF, being the instrument of those forces, floated the $12 billion loan in November of last year, and money keeps dribbling in. And so the scenario is it's too big to fail. And there's some other parts of this scenario. The Zor gas field is coming on stream, and a few other things of this sort. So you say it just keeps bouncing along, and mm, not great, but mm. The second scenario is the Mubarak scenario. The Mubarak scenario has two versions. One is that the military decides that Sisi is a liability, much as they decided Mubarak was a liability. And so they decide to replace him. Plain and simple, new general comes. The B 
The flip side of that is that the military is actually itself changed as a result of this process. And there are reformers in the military who want to use the replacement of CC to begin to have some reforms of the broader political economy. Mm. It's possible. It's the Latin American scenario, the sort of pacted transition between reformers within government and in the opposition. So there is that possibility. There are military and police officers who do not like the present situation. It is not inconceivable that they could do something about it and reach out to opposite. So that's sort of 2B. And then 3 is the breakdown scenario. And the breakdown scenario is not the Iranian revolution. There is no Ayatollah Khomeini. There is no overarching organization coordination that could possibly do what the Iranians did in 1979. And that was a well thought out, classic sort of Leninist, Shia Leninist revolution in which Khomeini knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to split the military and he did it. There is not such a revolutionary movement in Egypt, and I cannot see one emerging in the near future. But what I can see is chronic breakdown throughout the country as people uh, become more and more upset, lack of water, uh, contamination, no jobs, if not starvation, undernutrition, all these things. And so more and more villages and quarters assert themselves, demonstrations and so on, and that this sort of grows together and it puts pressure on the regime and the cracks in the regime within the deep state, especially between the intelligence services and the military, then manifest themselves in open conflict. And then you have the sort of Hobbesian war of all against all, witness Libya, witness Yemen, and you go that way. So in order of likelihood, number one first, just keeps going as it is. Not great, but mm. Secondly, we get rid of CC and either we just get another guy or it's coupled with some reform. And then third, the whole thing goes south. So I'm sorry I don't have better news, <laughs> but uh, I'd look forward to hearing your questions and comments. And as I say, if you want to uh, reserve them to a private email, I'd be more than happy to uh, respond to you in the cards right there. Thank you all very much. <laughs>